This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. there. How's your Monday? It is good to be talking to you on this public holiday. And on the Country Hour today, you'll find out about a major WA police bust that's uncovered cattle allegedly stolen through, well, a few parts of the state, really, the Midwest, the Gascoigne and the Pilbara. And as you know, the price of cattle is going through the roof. So 800 head apparently taken and the value of that around $800,000. So the price is obviously a very tempting when you consider those sort of figures. Also today, just on uh, livestock and uh, livestock exports, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority is going to be inspecting all livestock export ships that operate in Australian waters. Every now and again, it sort of has, the authority has a bit of a buzz in some particular area or another. This time it's the livestock export ships. Why that area in particular, you will find out when you hear from Alan Schwartz from the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. Uh, That's after half past 12 today. First though, wool exporters have been the latest casualty in a worldwide crisis in the shipping industry. A bottleneck in Australian ports and also in ports like Singapore means that wool is taking up to 90 days to get to Europe. So that's 40 days more than usual and an extra 10 days to get to China. Wool broker Don McDonald from Dubbo in New South Wales says the delay is mainly affecting exporters and they may start buying less of the wool that is less desirable. One of the issues that's really uh, hampering things at the moment is a congestion in shipping, particularly around Singapore. And, you know, half the world's freight goes through Singapore and apparently, you know, the the wool that's being shipped to Europe and, and Europe is starting to come back online. And, of course, you know, we're all wanting that to happen as soon as possible post-COVID. But apparently shipping intervals have been extended by up to 40 days. So it's taking something like 90 days to get to Europe. And China, normally, it's a a very quick turnaround, two-week turnaround. There's delays of between seven and 20 days to China. So that's impacting cash flow on the exporters. In in some cases, it's it's halving their facility. So uh, that's probably a major factor why the increased quantity is starting to impact the market. This week, we're looking at another at least 50,000 bales on offer. I mean, what kind of impact could, you know, could those kind of delays you're seeing combined with the exchange rate, what could that have as you're starting to see more of the wool come onto the market? There's an underlying strength in the market. And so what you'll see is as a bit of pressure comes on the market, buyers will pick the eyes out of it more. So anyone who's offering wool with good specs probably is fairly safe. And, you know, we saw this week that the falls in the finer end, and and they've been the stars of the show uh, over the last month, but the falls in the finer end were about the same as they were in the medium microns. So um, I think that off-style types, obviously there's a lot of high VM coming through now. We're starting to see a lot of colour coming through in the wool clip. Those sort of things will impact price more. Low VM, good strength, 
bright wools, those wools will sell well. And I think that's a trend that we're going to see probably going into winter time. And, and I don't think that the offerings are going to ease back too much because if the market can somewhere maintain a level around where we are now, the returns aren't too bad. And so more people are encouraged to offer. Don McDonald, he's from McDonald & Co Wool in New South Wales. Peter Morgan is the Executive Director of the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors. He says the shipping delays have a direct flow-on effect to the wool exporters. One, it puts pressure on financing because the delays are happening and so you're not going to be paid till the, till the wool's delivered. That puts pressure on cash flow. We found that shipping rates, particularly going to Europe, have gone up very sharply. So the wool is wanted, but there's a delay in getting it there. So that could potentially pose a problem later on. It creates a trade issue at the moment because of the delays. People have got the wool bought and not paid for and they're not getting paid until they're able to deliver it. Most of it's going to to Asia, of course. 90% of our wool, probably since about April last year, has been going to China. And that's less of an issue than Europe is, although Europe's been picking up a bit. It's mostly going to China and going by Singapore or stayed up. And as one exporter said to me the other day, he goes to both parts of the world. You've got no certainty when, when you book space on a ship because that space can be cancelled and you can be put back a week, two weeks or four weeks, depending on where the wool is going. Does that mean then that people will be less likely as exporters to want to fill orders to Europe? Oh, no, no. Uh, they're natural traders. So I want to fill <laughs> if, they, if they can. But they might just get squeezed on the on their profit. They're all in the same position. It's a very competitive industry. Financial pressures pretty much a lot of the time, one way or another. And no sign of any trade embargoes or bans or whatever into China? No, no, we're... Uh, that situation is pretty good. Australia, as you, as you well know, is the principal supplier of elite fine wool, merino wool. And China was always a large user of it, even before the situation started with the outbreak of COVID-19. It was still taking 80% of Australia's wool. So their wool textile manufacturing industry is very dependent on Australian Merino wool. So they can't get it from anywhere else, they have to buy it from Australia? Yep. Peter Morgan from the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors with Michael Condon. 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour and as wool broker John McDonald was telling you just a few moments ago, there's a lot of VM, vegetable matter, coming through in the wool now and that's certainly going to affect the price you get for your wool. Here in WA, drought-like conditions in many parts of the south of the state are really starting to show up in that wool that's coming off in the shearing sheds. To tell you what he's seeing, he's president of the WA Shearing Industry Association, Darren Spencer. A lot of our members are talking about the, the yields and the VM in wool, where a lot of the yields are down because of the dry uh, spring and lack of paddock cover. So where normally a lot of clips around sort of in my area would be sort of around a 65% yield. We're looking this year at below 60% and some even down as low as 50% just from the amount of dust and dirt in the wool. So yields are obviously down a bit. 
Is 50% the floor or are some yields going even lower than that? I have seen a couple in where in wieners I've seen it below 50%, sort of down around the 48%. But, um, yeah, most of, most of the um, grown fleece wool is sort of above 50%. And what sort of effect are those lower yields having on the overall clip? I mean, is that a material reduction? Yeah, well, it's, it's all bought on clean price. So, so yeah, your greasy price that's quoted doesn't look quite so good. And, um, yeah, there's a bit of resistance to the lower-yielding wools as well from the Chinese. How dry does it have to be before the dry starts to affect wool quality to this extent? It's not the actual wool quality. It's a matter of what's in the wool. So with all the dust in the wool, and, yeah, which makes it look a lot poorer and the tenderness of the wool as well with the lack of feed. Does it have to be pretty dry before that starts to happen? Yeah, it does. The tenderness you will get uh, if you get a change in your feed, but um, with all the dust and stuff, yeah, it has to be pretty dry to get yields down that low. We're certainly hearing, Darren, that it is pretty dry in a lot of areas, uh, particularly around your neck of the woods in the Lake Grace, wider area. I mean, how dry is it by your estimation, you know, in an historical sense? Oh, it's probably the driest... I've ever seen it. I've been contracting Lake Grace for 30 years. I've never seen it this dry, and especially south of Lake Grace, south of Lake Grace through to Pingra, had a, a terrible year as far as rainfall went. And, uh, yeah, and as far as crops went, they were, they were low-yielding crops, and so there was no dry matter in the paddocks and no feed grew. Another quality issue that does crop up from time to time is vegetable matter. Is that arising at the moment? Are you hearing about that? Yeah, so we're seeing a, a fair bit of vegetable matter in the wool here this year. A lot of it would be coming from farms where they use chaff cuts, so sheep are chasing, chasing grain and stuff in, in the chaff piles more so this year with the lack of other feed in the paddock. So they tend to get a fair bit of chaff up over their backs and things like that. And just the dryness of the vegetable matter in the paddocks is, um, you know, sheep laying down and, and the wind blowing like it does, we've had a lot of easterly winds and we're tending to find a lot of VM in the wool. And is that is it elevated, you know, above what you would normally expect even for this time of the year? Yeah, it is a bit above what we'd normally have this year. But probably not as bad off as, as what they sort of predict in, in the east where they've had so much feed and so little sheep. There's a lot of seed and a lot of feed there that, you know, the necks and, and the bellies and stuff of a lot of the sheep over there yeah. have got a lot of VM in them. Yeah, so they've got an abundance of feed where we've got no feed and we still have VM problems. <laughs> Doesn't seem fair. No. <laughs> With these sorts of issues around, does it have any implications for, you know, the life of shearing gear? What sort of effect is it having on the gear that you guys use? Oh, look, some of the lambs and some of the younger sheep we've been shearing have got that much sand in them that we're looking at, you know, a cutter to every couple of sheep where you'd normally be changing a cutter to about five or six sheep, yeah. They're changing a cutter every second sheet. God, that must be a nightmare. Oh, it is. There's a lot of grinding at night time and a lot of grinding papers but and, and chopping a lot of gear out as well. So the guys are finding their cutters and, and their combs are not lasting anywhere near as long as what they normally do. When it's having that sort of effect on gear, is that a cost to the contractors and the shearers? Is that a, is that a significant well, cost they have to bear? Yeah, it's a significant cost to the shearers. And, you know, they supply all their own combs and cutters. Yeah, so you're wearing out your gear that much quicker. Just to put it into perspective, I mean, how many cutters, therefore, would an average shearer be going through per day? And how much would they usually expect to go through? Normally, a shearer would probably use about 40 cutters a day. 
where, you know, this year they're probably using, you know, 80 to their 100 cutters a day in, in the Sandia sheep. Right. That's a lot of cutters. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of grinding at night time too. Just lastly, we're still in February, and so it's a while before the dry season supposedly is over. What's your sense of how things are going to pan out over the next couple of months, few months? We won't see a hell of a lot of change. It depends on the easterly winds and the and the drift around the place with all the dust in the paddocks and stuff like that. Farmers are starting to lock their sheep up more so than, than having them walking around and contain them in, in smaller areas. Good thing the way things are going. There's still a lot of sheep moving out of our area. I had a client ring me only a couple of days ago to say that he was over over chasing sheep around and trying to water sheep and feed sheep and once we finish shearing them they'll be gone and he probably won't have sheep back there again. 18 past 12, that is Darren Spencer. He's the president of the WA Shearing Industry Association and catching up there with Daniel Mercer. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Very shortly, I think there'll be an update from the newsroom. Well, you'll find out shortly, won't you, if anyone turns up in the studio here. I think that's the plan. All will be revealed shortly. Definitely going to the Bureau of Meteorology. I just gave Luke Huntington a call to give him the heads up just in case he was thinking maybe the country has the day off. No. No chance. So Luke Huntington with the details. I wonder if it's raining at your place. Let me know on the text this afternoon, 0448922604. There are a few rainfall readings to get through from over the weekend, but there's certainly a bit of activity around parts of the state anyway. So is, if it's raining, let me know, 0448922604. At 19 past 12, it is one of the country's oldest exports, native Australian sandalwood has been harvested and shipped out of Western Australia since 1844. But key figures are warning the $40 million industry could collapse unless the WA state government makes changes to harvest quotas and stops its Forest Products Commission from competing in the sandalwood marketplace. Joe Prendergast with the details. In a fairly frank letter sent to four WA government ministers last year, members of the Australian native sandalwood industry and conservation groups warned of a dire future for the fragrant wood unless government makes changes to how sandalwood is sold, harvested and seeded. Their concern is twofold, market saturation with the looming harvest of plantation wood and concerns about the sustainability of wild sandalwood stocks. It'll be threatening our economy, you know, because we're trying to create employment for our people, continue to stay connected, get our families and our people away from the problems in town and keep them connected to the land. We can't do that if our economy is threatened by, from the government, flooding the market and, you know, affecting the market that way. That needs to be reduced so that we can have a chance. If, don't, if that don't, um, don't happen, well, we'll... We'll have no chance, you know. Clinton Farmer is continuing his father's work of harvesting sandalwood on traditional lands in the Gibson Desert. There are millions of sandalwood trees across the wheat belt in plantations which are almost ready for harvest. Clinton Farmer is worried about this wood flooding the market, prices dropping and businesses like his collapsing. 
We've got some pretty sophisticated modelling on our expectation of wood flow um, over, uh, as I say, the next 15 to 20 years. That steps up um, from four to 500 tonne currently rapidly to 2,000 tonne and 2,023. And then there's another significant step up from 2,024 onward, uh, where we could start to harvest around 6,000 tonne of product a year. Keith Drage is the Managing Director of WA Sandalwood Plantations. He oversees about 13,000 hectares of plantation trees. He'll start full harvest of some of his trees this year and he wants to see the amount of wild wood harvested in WA significantly reduced, down from its current quota of 2,500 tonnes. It's been well flagged over the years that as plantation resource comes online, there'll need to be this transition uh, from reduced wild harvest um, complemented by the plantation resource. And what's happening is that uh, there is no reduction in the wild harvest. Uh, Plantation wood is coming online. Uh, There is too much wood in the system. For every tonne of wood that's sold, you need, if you're going to increase the supply, additional buyers and additional demand. And Uh, That's not something that's been focused on by the FPC. Um, There is an oversupply in the market. So simply, you're going to have a wall of supply that comes, which will see price erosion and loss of value for us, for the FPC and for the state. The Forest Products Commission, or FPC, has about 6,000 hectares of sandalwood plantations, which are expected to be ready for harvest around 2026. The FPC was set up by the state government. It's a for-profit entity which oversees commercial harvesting, regeneration, marketing and the sale of wild sandalwood. That's a role which some say must change, calling for the FPC's for-profit status in wild sandalwood to be removed. They want it to stop competing with Indigenous and plantation wood suppliers. If you believe that the engendering a plantation resource Um, had merit in the first place. And you understand that the FPC has embarked on that journey with taxpayer money. Where they should be motivated to have a return to the state and a state benefit is through promoting that transition from the wild resource into a wild and plantation synergistic market, uh, which would generate returns for the state from their own plantations. There were 12 signatories to the letter sent to the WA government at the end of last year, which also questioned the success of the government's sandalwood regeneration program. Traditional owner Clinton Farmer is worried sandalwood will be wiped out in parts of the state due to over-harvesting and what he says are unsuccessful regeneration works. They are over-harvesting and they are harvesting the young trees which is not good for the for the perfume market you know we do uh, do the harvesting um, according to the knowledge that was passed on to us in a sustainable way that's what we want in place so that um, it don't get harvested out you know we need to control the harvesting and do it in a sustainable way so that the species is not threatened we need to keep it you know so that it's there for the future you know The Environment and Forestry Ministers were contacted for comment. In a written statement, Forestry Minister Dave Kelly said the annual harvest quota of wildwood would be reviewed prior to 2026. 
He said, we are supportive of updating the current WA Sandalwood Industry Development Plan, which was produced over a decade ago, and will work closely with the plantation and wild sandalwood sectors to review all aspects of the sandalwood industry. Joe Prendergast with those details. And the story, the online story is now up for you. You can just search Sandalwood Exports Collapse ABC and you will find it straight away. Just search Sandalwood Exports Collapse ABC to read through the online story. 25 past 12 here on the Country Hour and you are now off to Pemberton, about three and a half hours south of Perth, where David Redomoljak... Jack, sorry, has just finished the potato harvest. He says it was pretty good, pretty good season in terms of the quality, but the prices, well, they've been less than desirable. His family has been growing potatoes in the region for several decades, but he says right now he's at a bit of a crossroads because unless prices improve, he may have to cut the crop from his rotation. Yeah, chips buds for WA chip went really well. Good, good yields, good quality. Uh, very happy with them. And the wear market, yeah, I thought, thought our quality was very good. The blues, the Rodeo, and the Nardine tried a bit of Valari this year. That went went pretty well. Yeah, the the the, the quality, but the price is still still fairly soft. I think there's more that that I think the industry could do to get our prices up um, to to you know a bit more sustainable level. So say this year, so that you mentioned the quality was good, but what were you getting, you know, per per kilo for these spuds? Uh, some, of, some of the blues, the raw blue spuds, were average about 70 cents, 75 cents. Rodeo, about the same. But the whites, which are Nardine and Valari, sort of around that 55, 60 cents. Some as low as 50, yeah, which is down a fair bit from the last couple of years where we're getting sort of extra 10 to 20 cents a kilo over the last couple of years. So it, it does hurt a bit, yeah, financially. What are they? What are they putting that down to? Is it the supermarkets? Is it the middle? Like, what's what's sort of the crux of the issue? I just think we need a bit more slice of that four dollars in the shop that they're selling for. You know, three to four dollars in the shop, but at the big super chains, I think they have got monopoly over us, and I don't think they're giving us a fair a fair price for our product. How long have you been in this game? It's it's a couple of generations. Yeah, my granddad was uh, spud farming, and uh, my dad. And um, so the third, now my son's the fourth generation uh, that's on the farm growing spuds. So it's a, it's a lot of uh, knowledge in the industry that we have between us all. Yeah. Um, pretty tough, pretty tough time. Uh, it's not getting easier. I think as you get older, you, th- you really wonder what you're doing and what you're doing it for. I think I've got a duty to feed the country and that's about it this stage for for cheap not so much cheap in the shop but it's, it's, it's a very uh, low price back to the consumer and I think it's not just in spuds I think milk and a lot of other industries are the same uh, in the same boat as us you're making some you're facing a bit of a crossroads in terms of potato production this year uh, yeah because we're starting to get a bit more heavy in the in the grape industry with our, 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 our label with our wine sales and grape and spuds are sort of getting to them or potatoes are getting to a point where you're really considering if it's viable going forward not a lot of money to reinvest in the industry to, to you know to upgrade machinery and just any gear really and it's quite expensive crop industry to be in to, 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 to stay viable so on an, on an average year how many tons of potatoes would you produce uh, we've scaled back. We're probably up around that sort of seven, eight hundred ton. This year we're probably about to five hundred, and next year we might cut again, depending on you know what the market 
was hard to judge the market, but just sit down and roundtable discussion on where we go forward from here. So it's sort of a game that's been your family for you know four generations, but you're looking at maybe even moving away from spuds. Yeah, there's other options we, we could consider, a bit of share farming, a bit of this. I'm putting everything on the table at, the, at this point. To, you know, I really want, it's a good part of our rotation in our, in our, on our farm. You know, it's good for pasture. And uh, we've got a little equipment, you know, the know-how. And I'd like, you know, it's something that we'll, we'll, we will consider at some point, yeah. If the money just doesn't, you're not getting those returns, it's just something that you, you may have to look pretty hard at. I mean, presumably that's pretty nice looking dirt if you're getting a good return out of your grapes is that something that you might look at doing over on that plot of land over there uh yeah like all those things are on the table yeah we got a good good cattle herd now and um yeah and and that with 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 our rotation Uh, yeah i I think it's very important that that we have these industries and growers around and be stay viable and industry because not many of us left i think we're down to a a handful now in the pemberton area so where was you know once a thriving industry now it's sort of yeah it's it's cutting back a fair bit Mm. we're standing here in the yards with your son i mean are you hoping that there can be some kind of uptick in the price so that he can farm potatoes like you did Uh, i i think so yeah yeah i think you know with he's got good knowledge he's he's got a good education i think there's yeah there's there's room for 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 that to happen but i i just think we just need more of that four dollars a kilo that's in the shop i think we need to be getting you know a fair share. We don't want a free ride, do we? just want a fair one. How big a part of your life have potatoes become? Well, I'm pretty sure I was born in the spud paddock, so that's <laughs> I'm 60 next year or so, so it's a long bloody time to be in the dirt um, growing spuds. So I think you learn a lot over those years. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and it's in your blood, I think, and it's hard to, to shake it out. David Radommel-Jack, he's a Pemberton potato grower. Pretty difficult times, as he was just telling you, deciding whether or not to source seed ahead of this season. As you just heard, he's getting around about 70 to 75 cents per kilo for his royal blue potatoes. And the white varieties is getting around 55 to 60 cents a kilo. And this just threw on the text from another potato grower. Yes, a fair share of the consumer dollar would be very nice. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. If you would like to have your say on the text, guess who has turned up? It is Jonathan Beale from the newsroom. Always here. Thanks, Belinda. The Prime Minister has announced it will spend nearly half a billion dollars on immediate measures to address systemic problems in the aged care sector following the release of a Royal Commission's final report. The inquiry, which made 148 recommendations, found inadequate funding is at the core of many issues in the sector. Scott Morrison says it's clear a program of transformation is needed. WA-based Crown Resorts Board Director John Poynton says it was in the best interests of Crown and its shareholders for him to resign from the board and as chairman and director of Perth's Burswood Casino. Mr Poynton is the fifth Crown Director to resign from the company's board in the wake of last month's Bergen Inquiry report, which found Crown was unsuitable to operate a new new Sydney casino and exposed allegations of money laundering at Crown Perth. And the WA Liberal leader Zach Kirkup has made an impassioned speech at his campaign launch, telling the party faithful he'll take 
take full responsibility for the decisions he's made during the campaign. After last week conceding his party could not beat Labor on March the 13th, Mr Kirkup used his campaign launch to again warn of the dangers of a landslide Labor victory. More news coming up, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that. It is 28 to 1. Twenty-seven to one. Hello, I'm Belinda Varaschetti, taking you through until the news at one o'clock. And between now and the news at one, no markets today because of the long weekend. So off to Mushay tomorrow for the double header, the cattle and the sheep. But today and shortly, you will hear about this uh, police that have uncovered um, a bit of a cattle theft circuit, I guess. And it's all been, this cattle has been taken through different parts of the state, the Midwest, the Gascoigne and the Pilbara cattle, very expensive at the moment. So um, 800 cattle taken in this particular circumstance. You'll hear more about that shortly here on the Country Hour. And also some research into the banana disease. This is Tropical Race 4. Some big money just been secured and researchers through the University of Technology in Queensland are going to be doing some quite breakthrough research, really, into this disease. You'll learn more about that shortly. Right now it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Luke Huntington with you this afternoon. Luke, is there much rain about parts of the southwest land division this afternoon? Uh, yeah, that's where it's all been um, happening over the last um, 24 hours or so. Um, so... Uh, earlier this morning, we did see a good line of uh, showers and thunderstorms go through the lower west and the western central uh, wheat belt region. So that delivered the heaviest falls uh, this morning, sort of with um, some falls around 20 to 40 millimetres, uh, especially through that inland uh, lower west and the western parts of the central wheat belt. And we did see a couple of places even get up to around 60 millimetres. So that was pretty pretty good um, in terms of rainfall through there. Uh, and then the rest of today, uh, we're still going for showers and thunderstorms pretty much right throughout the southwest land division. Um, the only area that will probably miss out on most of it will be the uh, sort of the south coastal region with just a chance of a shower uh, today. But uh, the, probably the main focus for the rest of today will be on that central uh, west region. Um, we have issued a, a severe thunderstorm warning in that part. So um, damaging winds, heavy rainfall and large hail uh, could be possible through that central west region and into the northwestern central wheat belt into the afternoon. So uh, we are seeing a couple of little um, good cells at the moment through the inland southern parts of the central west. So that'll develop right through the central west uh, this afternoon. 
Uh, and then as we head into tomorrow, um, similar conditions really. Uh, those showers and thunderstorms will continue right throughout the southwest lane division. Um, and the, uh, yeah, the weather system that's causing it is a trough and then it's interacting with the upper level system to the west of the state, um, dragging in some tropical moisture. So uh, that's going to hang around <coughs> sorry, into Wednesday and, uh, and also into Thursday. But once we get into Thursday, it'll start uh, gradually contracting uh, to the east and eastern parts so um and then by friday it should have just about contracted out of the southwest land division so it's really just the next uh few days that we could see some um good rainfall throughout the southwest land division all right into northern and eastern parts then luke what can you see yeah, so um, it's it's happening in the uh, Western Pilbara today. So there is a band of showers and thunderstorms extending throughout that region uh, at the moment uh, and continuing tomorrow through the Western Pilbara as well. Uh, there could be some uh, moderate to heavy falls uh, associated with that band as well. So we're talking... Um, any, anywhere between Exmouth and Caratha, they could see sort of the uh, even up to 20 to 40 millimetres through there over the next couple of days. And uh, that that's all just due, due to a, a trough running through that region. Um, but it does start to uh, contract eastwards uh, during Wednesday. So the focus of the rainfall uh, will be throughout the uh, central and eastern uh, Pilbara on the Wednesday. Again, moderate heavy falls are possible with that. And uh, it weakens out by uh, Thursday. So those heavier falls. Uh, will weaken right out and uh, yeah, there won't be uh, those heavy falls on the Thursday. Uh, but there will be showers and thunderstorms um, throughout uh, the uh, northwestern Kimberley, uh, throughout the Gascoigne, uh, the, the Pilbara as well over the next uh, few days. Uh, the Kimberley probably won't get too much uh, thunderstorm activity over the next few days. It'll be fairly isolated. And uh, as we head into uh, Friday, all the shower and thunderstorm activity will be confined to the Kimberley, uh, the eastern Pilbara and the interior region. And Luke, can you just recap those warnings for this afternoon? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we do have that um, severe thunderstorm warning throughout the central west region and into the northwestern parts of the central wheat belt um, for damaging uh, winds, large hail and heavy rainfall for this afternoon. And we've also got some uh, strong wind warnings out uh, for the uh, mainly for the south coast and into the southwestern part of the state. And uh, I think that is it for the warnings at this stage. Great. Thank you for those details. Appreciate that. This is The Country Hour on ABC WA, 21 to 1. There has been a little bit of rain about over the weekend here in WA. So rattling through those figures for you now, it's a look back at the last 72 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking 5 mils and over. In northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, Country Downs 12, Drysdale River Station 7, Allenbray 11, Kilto Station 13, Udiella 10. In the Pilbara, Exmouth Town 5, Learmonth Airport 6 and Warrawagain had 7 and the Eucla? Belladonia, 12. The Southwest Land Division now. In the Central West, Lancel and Defence had 18. And a little bit about in the Lower West, Ankatel, 9, Bickley, 13, Bindoon, 32, Bungandor, 10, Garden Island, 7, Gidjiganup, 11, Jinjin West, 13, Glen Eagle, 13, Jandicott, Aero, 11, Jaradale, 7, Julemar Forest, 57, Carnot, 5, Carrigullen North 12, Kings Park 11, Lake Chittering 27, Lancelin 18, Millenden 10, Minston Park 66, Mulyabini 33, 
Moondar Brook 17, Mount Solis 6, Muche 13, Mundaring 12, Noonal 48, Pierce Raff Base 9, Perth Airport 9, Perth Metro 11, Rollystone 12, Rottnest Island 8, Serpentine 8, South Perth 11, Swanbourne 10, 2J East 43, Wanneroo 9, Werribee 17, Whiteman Park 9, and Woodridge Estate 15. Southern Coastal Region, Many Peaks 5. Windrush had 5, but that was over 7 days. And in the Central Wheat Belt, Bangala 5, Kelji 11, Candidan Airfield 13, Dungan Peak 8, Long Forest 6, Mount Hardy 5, Mount Naughty 30, Muresque 19, Northam 32, and Quadney 10, Tamman 12, Will 39, York had 6, and York East 10. And just one of note in the Great Southern, Coondi had 5. This is the country hour, 19 to 1. A major WA police bust has uncovered cattle allegedly stolen throughout the Midwest, the Gascoigne and the Pilbara. The Rural Crime Squad operation saw two people charged from the Upper Gascoigne over the theft and sale of 800 head of cattle valued at about $800,000. Police say they're targeting criminal networks linked to musterers, livestock trucking, stock agents, abattoirs and feedlots. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association CEO Luke Simpkins says the police have done a great job and the industry's really thankful. I think the Rural Crime Squad has done a, a good job and the progress of the task force is going to be well received by our sector. Stock control remains a problem because we're not talking about small southern pastures here. We're talking about massive areas of grazing that cattle can move around. And stock losses through rustling has always been a problem, always been a very big concern. And I'm sure producers will be happy to see uh, such a strong action taking place. Obviously, it's always prevention is always better. But dealing with these people and stopping this sort of organised system particularly is uh, going to be uh, good news for our sector. What can prevent this sort of thing from happening? We've already got the important aspects in place, such as earmarking and branding, but also, uh, I guess, in the fullness of time when we all find out a little bit more about how this has taken place by these criminals, we'll be able to sense any weaknesses in the system that we currently have and can take steps to uh, try to eliminate that. Uh, And so certainly that'll be a a major part of the wash-up after this investigation is complete. Do you think there should be more more of a dedicated livestock squad on top of what's already in place? We do have a rural crime squad, and I've worked with them in the past, or I've uh, spoken to them in the past, and they're pretty enthusiastic about their work. So I think this is evidence of the fact that they are working hard and working effectively against this sort of criminality. So I think that it's good. There's always scope for more people, uh, more of their staff or their team to be increased in number. But uh, again, you know, once we see uh, more of the details from this set of crimes come out uh, into the open, probably after court cases, we'll be able to see what more can be done, both uh, within our sector and obviously within uh, law enforcement as well. Looking forward to seeing everybody who's part of this being dealt with and that's going to be an important part of of this whole process. But of course, again, it'll be great to see the details of how this has taken place and then again,
we can make assessments as to whether we need to do more as a sector uh, and whether you know, other elements of the whole supply chain, trucking companies, stock agents, abattoirs, feedlots and musterers, what needs to be done in those cases as well. You know, I think there will be a lot of ramifications. The police talked about the alleged networks being quite wide. What could we persuade people in, you know, who already have existing jobs, you think, to um, get involved in something like this? Certainly, human nature and greed is one of those things that people, if they see an opportunity and they think they can get away with it, sadly, uh, some people will succumb to that sort of opportunity. Uh, it's very disturbing, of course, but... This is human nature, and the best way to make sure that people think twice about this in the future is the certainty of being caught and dealt with firmly by uh, the law. Kimberly Pilbara Cattlemen's Association CEO Luke Simpkins speaking with Ted O'Connor about a police operation which uncovered the alleged theft and sale of 800 cattle last week. A 43-year-old man and 37-year-old woman will face court in Carnarvon next month charged with six counts of stealing, six counts of property laundering and one count of receiving. Quarter to one. In other livestock news, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority says over the next couple of months it's going to inspect all livestock export ships operating in Australian waters. AMSA says it will be looking at things like the ship's maintenance and the crew's familiarity with determining the, determining the ship's stability. So why the sudden blitz? Well, to learn more, Dan Fitzgerald spoke to AMSFA's Alan Schwartz. These focused inspections, we're calling them, these are not an unusual thing. We usually pick a topic once a year to look at, and it's, it's usually based on some sort of current issue that we've either recognised or is developing because of changing rules. So this one that we're going to run from March through until the end of August is looking at livestock ships. And the reason we wanted to do that is livestock export out of Australia. It is a big trade and and certainly um, AMSA's role is, is to make sure that that trade is conducted as safely as possible. So there's been a few livestock incidents around Australia and around the world and, and we just thought, look, it's, it's time that we maybe on top of what we would normally do is that we have a slightly more in-depth look at a number of items. Were there any really concerning things that, that happened that you made you decide, okay, we really need to look at, at livestock vessels? We've certainly had the issue of the ship, the Barclay Pool, uh, off Western Australia. That was a significant issue which looked to come down to the ongoing maintenance on board. And, of course, we're all, I, I guess, all well aware of the Gulf Livestock 1 tragedy off Japan. Um, and even though that particular ship wasn't coming from Australia, it wasn't on a voyage from Australia at that point, certainly as, as any responsible regulator and as uh, the community would expect, we look at what's happening internationally and say, well, maybe, maybe it is time for us to look at livestock ships that are trading out of Australia, make sure they comply with the Australian-specific requirements and just dig a little bit deeper than we do normally. Because all of those ships do have dedicated certificates issued by us for the carriage of livestock. And so once a year, um, we do go through a process of validating their compliance. And this program is just a um, not waiting for that annual check, um, and it's it's looking at the actual operational practices on board. So are they looking at the weather conditions that they are sailing into? Do they have accurate weights of 
the livestock and the fodder and the water, because all of that is just is critical for making sure that the ship and the people on board are kept safe. I guess with the incidents you've mentioned, um, they potentially could have occurred in other shipping industries, um, a gas ship, a container ship. Why are you taking up with livestock vessels specifically? Well, specifically because we, we have um, Australian-specific requirements for livestock ships, irrespective of what country those ships are flagged in. And certainly the, the safe export of livestock from Australia is something that, that AMSA, along with all of the other functions we perform, we do take seriously. And we just thought, look, it's time for us to have a look at it. And as an example, last year, uh, we ran one of these inspection campaigns looking at container ships, about how they carry containers because of issues that had happened here and around the world. So, as I said to start with, it's not unusual for us to just pick a focus area to, to look a little bit deeper into for a period of time, and this year it's, it's the livestock ships. And so if all the requirements on this checklist aren't met, what are the potential consequences for a vessel? As all regulators do, we, we have a whole policy and, and, a, and a, an approach to how we deal with deficiencies. And if we identify something that's wrong, we have the option and the judgment to go from right at the end where we just talk to the, you know, the, the master and say, this isn't quite right right up to the, uh, I guess, the main compliance tool when things are particularly bad is what's called detention, and that's where we say the ship cannot leave port until such time as whatever that deficiency is fixed. And sometimes everything in between, sometimes we'll give them a, a notice that says you must fix this within two weeks. Sometimes it might be you can't load livestock in that particular pen. So we, we certainly go out of our way to make sure that the compliance uh, requirements we put on them is proportionate to the seriousness of the identified defect. Alan Schwartz, he's the General Manager of the Operations Division within the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and AMSFA's focused inspections, uh, they kick off today, March the 1st and go through until August the 31st. 10 to 1. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. A Queensland university's plan to come up with a disease-resistant banana has had a really big boost after securing a major commercial backer. Queensland University of Technology has struck a multi-million dollar five-year deal with global company Fresh Del Monte, which will use gene editing technology to produce a Cavendish banana that's resistant to tropical race 4, or TR4, as it's known. It's a disease that's devastated banana production around the world and has really tested the Australian industry since an outbreak in the Tully Valley in far north Queensland. The university's professor, James Dale, is excited about taking these gene-edited bananas from the trial plot near Darwin to supermarkets around the world. We're doing the final analysis at the moment. So the current field trial has been in the ground for three years, so we've had four crops from that. We've measured the yield of those plants compared to the Cavendish bananas that, that haven't don't have resistance and the yield is almost identical. So we're, we're really happy with that. Have you been able to give it the consumer test? You know, we're talking about size and appearance and flavour. Okay, so size and appearance, yes, uh, we can do that. But we haven't done the flavour test yet. 
we've actually got to apply to get uh, approval to do that and we'll be doing that relatively soon. We're just collecting all the final data on this particular line that we're very, very uh, keen about and then we'll, we'll do the taste and texture test as well. The reason for that is these are genetically modified bananas and so they're covered by regulations under what's called the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator in Australia and for each step we do, we have to get a licence to do it. We stick to those guidelines very, very carefully. No, understood. Well, what does this new agreement you've got with Del Monte now allow you to do? Where do you go from here? This is to, to, to now apply a new technology in a very, very similar way. This is a technology known as gene editing, and we've been developing it in bananas here at QUT over the last three or four years. And the idea with this is the, the plants we've got in, in the Northern Territory, we've taken a gene out of a, a wild banana and put it into Cavendish. So it's a banana gene. What we're doing now with this, uh, with this new technology is to actually take the genes that are already present in Cavendish bananas and alter them to generate the resistance in Cavendish. So rather than adding a gene, we're altering a gene. It's a technology that that really we're assuming will reduce the amount of regulatory oversight, the amount of regulation we need to get these through to market. TR4, I think, showed up in the Northern Territory and it was within a decade, it more or less wiped out the entire industry. Now it was found in far North Queensland. The resilience has been terrific, absolutely terrific, but there's still that fear. If you can come up with this equally yielding Cavendish banana that's resistant to TR4, what does this mean for Australia's banana industry? It means a couple of things. The concern the farmers have is, you know, the last thing they want is to come out one morning and see dead Cavendish bananas in their plantation. It's going to have all sorts of ramifications for them around the quarantining of their plantations, etc. So having a TR4-resistant Cavendish that concern is gone. But this is really just stage one. What it really means is that we can start to produce resistances to other diseases. That's on the horizon as well. But there are other things that we'll be able to do to Cavendish bananas and maybe other ones to really improve you know, their consumer acceptability. So this is really the platform to really move bananas from being just Cavendish and, and susceptible to diseases into, into probably a much more exciting crop. Professor James Dale, he's from the Queensland University of Technology and speaking with Phil Staley, 6 to 1. Well, WA banana growers are really happy with this deal, which will see the industry get that one step closer to commercialising new varieties resistant to Panama Tropical Race 4. Sweeter Banana Cooperative's Doriana Mangeli says although the disease is currently contained to Queensland, WA growers are keeping a close watch on the latest research to develop these TR4 resistant varieties. It's not here yet, but we anticipate, you know, it's not a matter of if but when um, that TR4 does come to Penarvon. Um, and so holding out for a resistant variety is really um, the only option for you know, the Australian industry and the industry all around the world. The uh, development with the Queensland University and, and a deal with food producer Monte is just one of several research projects that are um, looking at this issue. I guess what sort of questions are growers going through growers' minds when it comes to these new varieties? The question in this particular instance would be that if, if a private food 
companies investing in this kind of research, there would probably be an expectation on their part that, that um, in order for anyone to grow these varieties, that there would be some kind of a payment. And whether that um, then becomes about who's got the money and who controls the technology and who's got the rights to grow it. So there would be all those sorts of questions about growing rights because uh, organisations, food companies often uh, develop varieties and own them and it prevents other, anyone, just anyone from growing it. You have got to apply and be contracted to and there's often rules and regulations and, and payments associated with that. So that, that would be um, one of the questions. Um, other questions really would be around what's the taste like, what's the texture like, um, how does it grow in our region, um, how does it, um, you know, does it deal with our climatic conditions that we have in um, Carnarvon that are very different to, say, North Queensland or Darwin even. Um, so is it a plant that can survive our summers, our winters, um, and um, does it stand up well to things like sea breezes? So there's all those kinds of questions as well. Um, uh, in terms of any variety that's been developed. And I guess the other thing is if once a variety is developed, how are consumers going to perceive this variety? Are they, is it going to eat the same? Do you need to invest heavily in a marketing campaign to promote what's different about this variety that might be different to the way that, you know, the Williams Cavendish grows that might, you know, ripen up in a different way, it might have a different look and feel, taste. So there's a whole lot of uh, questions around that. So Certainly, um, it's really good to see some uh, early results and, the, and, um, and some headway into solving the problem, but certainly there's a lot of work to be done before you could comfortably go, yep, that, that, that's going to solve all the problems that we've got with TR4 and, and people will move to that variety. What would it take in a practical sense to start planting them on farms? Is it something that would be easy to do with all the current trees in the ground? Yeah, that would be a, a big process as well. So we generally we replant our, our patches every five years. So in order to, I would suspect that unless people wholesale knocked everything down and started again all at once, you'd be looking at at least a five-year to ten-year transition. I mean, the scary thing about this disease is it's highly mobile, it's soil-borne, so it could come in any day, really. Um, somebody just needs to come in with a pair of boots that they've worn in Queensland on a farm that's infected, um, or if somebody bought in, um, you know, some planting material illegally, even something as simple as a bit of dirt on the bottom of a pallet um, or anything like that, and then we could have it across. So let's hope that doesn't happen. We know that variety development's a long-term thing. It just goes to show that the, the best way you can prevent TR4 is to get on your farm is to have those really good biosecurity protocols, changing your boots, washing tyres, and, and not bringing, you know, infected materials onto farms. And we just got to keep doing the good biosecurity stuff in the meantime. Sweeter Banana Cooperative Business Manager Doriana Manjali, who's the WA representative for the Australian Banana Growers Council, just talking about uh, how pleased she is that this research is being done into that banana disease TR4 and hopefully coming up with some resistant varieties. And Doriana talking to Courtney Fowler. Not far away from the news at one... But wanted to let you know that the big Tasmanian salmon and ocean trout company, Hewan Aquaculture, has plans to set up that massive yellow tail fish farm at the Abrolhos Islands, just off WA's Midwest Coast, which you've heard about before. But interestingly, a lot of companies presenting their financial figures for the half-year results anyway. And Hewan Aquaculture has just revealed a $95 million loss for the first half of the financial year. A lot of that saying that it's to do with COVID-19 and the depressed salmon prices. 
But Hewan's Peter Bender says that despite the numbers, he says the company has a really positive outlook. ABC WA, time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.